going to take our Bible and be in Philippians chapter 2 tonight to open up for this evening's study. Uh, we'll be back in Ecclesiastes next week, uh, but I got to thinking about what a good uh, follow-up would be for uh, the resurrection of Christ, and I thought, well, let's look at what happened next, because it is also very important and essential to uh, the Christian faith, but also our own Christian life, and so that is the exaltation of Christ. So, this uh, has to do with his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and uh, so I want to just bring out some things from the scriptures tonight uh, on that subject, and uh, we'll uh, pray that we can glean some things and um, uh, apply them to our life as well, and, and grant us great hope and, and confidence in uh, why we're here. So uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, notice that Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that text and all the text that comes before it because it flows together, I'll mention in a minute. But when we think about Christ and what he's done, when Jesus came into this dark world, he did so with the utmost humility, the utmost humility. And that's really what this passage communicates to us. If you read this chapter from verse 1 on to this particular point, um, it is a display of humility and also of humiliation on, the, on, the behalf, on behalf of Christ. No one has ever lowered himself to such a state of humiliation as Jesus did. When you consider who he is, he is the eternal son of God. He is uh, one who, being God, he has no beginning and he has no ending, right? He has no need and he has no lack. Being fully sufficient in himself and glorious in himself, he needs nothing. God could have existed forever without any need of us. That's something that puts us in perspective, right? He's totally and fully sufficient himself. But yet he chose to create, he chose to plan history, and uh, he as the eternal, holy, and honorable sovereign, the second person of the Trinity, willfully stepped into humanity through his own incarnation, through the virgin conception, lived a rather poor life as a Jewish man in, in Jerusalem, raised in a poor Jewish home, living perfectly and sinlessly, and gave himself to die the most horrific death. Uh, that we could ever know, and we consider what happened. This is what we call his humiliation, his utter humility. If you look at verse 5 through verse 8, you see this. You'll notice that Paul says to them, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And that leads us into our text that we've looked at here tonight. But that leads us to also understand what came after the cross. It was the resurrection. That's what we celebrated Sunday. But what came after the resurrection? You know, that's often where the story stops for a lot of people. What, what happens next? Jubilee asked those questions to me not long ago. We uh, we're talking about the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. And she started thinking, like, well, what, what happened after that? Where'd Jesus go? Is he still alive? I said, yep, he's very much still alive. 
uh, he ascended into heaven. He's there at the Father's right hand. So what's he doing? You see, these, these are all good questions, and the answers are essential to really our, our, our Christian purpose in this world and understanding what Christ is doing. We know that Christ spent a short time in the world after his resurrection. Uh, he appeared to his disciples and many others. He continued to teach them. Uh, but after that, he ascended up into heaven. And so understand that the resurrection of Christ is connected also to the ascension of Christ. And then ultimately, we see the final conclusion, which is the second coming of Christ, right? There's an end point to everything. But here's what I love about what Paul points out here. In verse 9 through 11, he points out that God has highly exalted him, highly exalted Christ. And in that exaltation, he has given him the name that is above every name. There is no name like the name of Jesus, is there? I mean, of all the names in the world, there's one name that the world tends to hate and doesn't like to hear. It's the name of Jesus. It's not Joseph. It's not Bob. It's not all the usual names we're used to, right? It's Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think Jesus said it plainly when he said the darkness hates the light. The name of Jesus is light to us. So there's no one in this world who is uh, higher or even equal to King Jesus. His name is above all others. And often we emphasize the importance of the crucifixion, resurrection, but we sometimes forget or let slide to the back the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. But understand that they are all interwoven together. You can't separate them. So notice with me in our notes here tonight, I want to point out some things. We're going to look at a few different texts of Scripture. So uh, get your, your fingers ready. We'll look at a few different texts we'll turn to, and I'll quote some to you. But notice with me, number one tonight, Christ's ascension to His throne. Christ's ascension to his throne. So we look at his ascension, and notice that it is an ascension to glory. It's an ascension to glory. You say, well, why didn't Jesus just stay on earth? Could he have just stayed here? Well, technically he could because he's God, right? God can do whatever he wants, but that wasn't part of the plan of God. The plan was for Christ to come in his humiliation, ultimately to lead to his exaltation, that he would be exalted high in glory above all, he would not stay here, but he would return to where he came from, uh, but this time having a human body in which he returned in. And so what we find with this is this plan uh, uh, is, is part of God's redemptive plan. He ascended into heaven vis visibly and physically. He was brought forth into the glory uh, of his Father. In fact, he told his disciples repeatedly that he must return to his Father. And you read this happen in Luke 24, 50 through 51. Here's one particular passage. The Bible tells us that he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Just carried up into heaven. Now, can you imagine seeing that sight? Imagine being the disciples walking with Jesus and they've seen him risen, but... He carries them out as far as Bethany, which is part of the Mount of Olives. It's on part of the Mount of Olives, the other side. And he just goes off into heaven. I mean, they, what, what does Acts tell us? Acts tells us that they're just standing there gazing. I mean, I think we'd all probably be doing the same thing, right? Have you ever let go of a, a helium balloon? And uh, as a kid, I used to love to do that, right? You get a balloon and let go of it. Now, our kids, they don't like to let go of them. They want to hang on to them for a long time which eventually leads to me getting annoyed and popping them with a knife or scissors, right? We, we know how that goes. But for me, I thought it was just a thrill just to let it go. 
and then watch it for as long as I could to see it until it just got smaller and smaller and disappeared. You can kind of envision the disciples there in Bethany. They're watching Jesus just disappear into the heavens all the way up into the presence of his Father again. What a sight that must have been to see. But the question is, why did Jesus ascend up into heaven? The answer is to continue and complete God's eternal plan for him and through him. Jesus was not only meant to accomplish redemption and be raised again and just continue on earth forever. He was to be received back into glory where he would forever be glorified and he would eventually return. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.16 about Christ. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And notice how he takes, he closes that, taken up in glory. Taken up in glory, friend. Taken up in glory. How marvelous that is to think about. John Flavel says in relation to this, he says, oh, what a change is this. Here he sweated, there he sits. Here he groaned, but there he triumphs. Here he lay upon the ground. There he sits in the throne of his glory. You know, he did this not only on behalf of himself, but he also did this on behalf of his people. His ascension is also for you. When you think about it, and when you look at Scripture, you see, because we are in Christ, Scripture teaches us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's your position in Him. Just as you are righteous in Him, you are also seated with Him. Ephesians 2.6, Paul told us this when we came through Ephesians, that He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what sticks out to me. You notice the present tense, not the future tense. It's a present reality for us that we are partakers of this ascension that He has done. He's allowed His people, even now, to share in a measure of the authority that Christ has seated at the right hand of God. And not only do we share in that glory of Christ because He's ascended on our behalf, but also that's also a picture of the fact that we also will be raised and brought up to Him as well. There's a resurrection day coming for us. There's nothing that can change our position in Christ, Christian. If all else in the world fails, you remember this thing stays the same. And we look at our world and we see a lot of chaos, a lot of tumult, a lot of problems, a lot of sin, right? But your position in Christ will never change, no matter how bad things get. Notice also that it was ascension to power, letter B. What specifically did Jesus do upon entering to heaven? Well, Mark records and says in Mark 16, 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God? Because this, Christian, this is his enthronement as king. This is his enthronement as king. This is the place from which Jesus rules as the exalted king who has all power in heaven and on earth. Now, we've, we've, I think we've looked before at the three offices of Jesus, right? Christ is the prophet and he's the priest. And what else is he? He's the king, right? As the prophet, he is the revelation of God to us, right? He is our prophet. He is our priest. As the priest, he is our intercessor and mediator between us and God. And as our king, he is the ruler and sovereign over all things. Now, here's what we find with re relation to this particular 
text, the ascension and his exaltation. Psalm 110.1, I love this passage. This is a prophecy that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You notice that there's two lords in reference here? The Lord said unto my Lord. Now, you'll notice that most Bibles, that first Lord is in all capital letters, right? And so there's significance to that. That's the covenant name Yahweh. And, and, and so it, there's an indicator here that the Lord says to my Lord, one person of the Trinity is talking to the other person, sit at my right hand until I make my, your enemies your footstool. You see, the enthronement of Christ in power is repeated throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And did you know that this particular verse, Psalm 110.1, it is the most quoted verse in your New Testament from the Old Testament. It's the most quoted one. You're going to find Jesus quote it, Peter will quote it, Paul quotes it, the author of Hebrews quotes it. Now, if you want to put Paul in there for Hebrews, he quotes it twice, but if it's not Paul, then uh, somebody else did. Uh, just to give you a little note there. But what does this verse teach us? It shows us the many, many things, but central to our point is that Christ is enthroned in power and authority as our king. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said this to before he ascended. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The word authority here, it means the right to control or command. It's absolute power. Absolute power and authority. Now, now, many think that Jesus, he does not have power and authority until some later point in history when he comes again. Or that he doesn't begin to reign or rule until he comes again. As if he's sitting at the right hand of God powerless. Just sitting there watching things happen on earth. Well, I'm here to tell you, friend, that Christ is sovereign now. Not just in the future. He is sovereign now and on into eternity. You see, the Christ whom God promised to come and through whom his kingdom would come has all authority and power right now. Jesus on his throne now is the sovereign over all things. And with his sovereign power, what's he done for the church? Well, I'll tell you one thing he's done. He has sent the Spirit of God to empower the church, to work mightily with the gospel and for his glory. I find this interesting. John 14, 12, he said to his disciples, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You think about how great the works of Christ were when his earthly ministry and all that he accomplished during his earthly ministry by the power of God. But you'll notice that through Christ's disciples and extending to his people, greater works would be accomplished. How can that be? Well, consider this. When Jesus was here in his earthly ministry... He was one man in one location, wasn't he? Doing the miracles and supernatural power of God. But what has happened ever since Christ ascended and now the church has been empowered with the Spirit? The church with the omnipotent Spirit dwelling within her spreads through the world and by that power, God's glory is manifested and the gospel triumphs. I love what Acts 1 tells us about the ascension. Let's go there for a moment. Acts chapter 1, we'll look at a few different passages. Just to, to, I'm trying to give you just the broad picture here of Christ and his ascension and why his ascension, his exaltation is so important to the overall plan of God and to our lives today. If you look at Acts chapter 1, if you look at verse 4 through 11, we see the ascension take place from Luke's account here. He says, 
while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. That whole thing just gives you a broad picture. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, church, because in a very short time, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Not a baptism of water, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this would be the empowerment of the church with the Spirit for a purpose. And what's the purpose of that? In verse 8, power would come upon them so that they would be his witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the other parts of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but living across the big pond, I'm thankful it includes the uttermost parts of the earth. <laughs> that the gospel's power came all the way here in your generation and reached you and in my generation and reached me. This is all because of Christ and what he has done. This power manifested supernaturally through the apostles in that apostolic age, and it continues to work supernaturally through his completed revelation of Scripture in the church. And so we consider the fact that the omnipotent Spirit of God dwells in every believer in every location throughout this world. The same God in the disciples and the apostles in the first century is the same God in you and I here today. He's the same God in our brothers and sisters in Africa and China and Russia, wherever they may be. That fascinates me. That fascinates me. So that's why it was so important for Christ to leave, so that he would send the Spirit to indwell his people and empower his people. That's what his ascension does. But notice with me number two. Not only do we see his ascension to his throne, it was one of power, one of glory, but we see Christ's authority on his throne. And I've broken this down into three categories, if you would, that really encompass everything, (laughs) because his authority encompasses everything, doesn't it? I want you to notice that he reigns over the creation. He reigns over the creation. Now, we've already established the power and authority of Christ, but how is this authority exercised? Over what does Christ reign? And one clear certainty of Christ's sovereign reign is that he reigns over the creation. It's it's saturated through Scripture also that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It all belongs to him. He's the creator. But what I love about the Gospels and how the New Testament really unfolds the Old Testament is how that at the center of creation, who do we see is the person, the agent in creation? It's Christ the Lord. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we see a reference to that in Colossians 1. Look at Colossians 1 with me for a moment. I love this passage, the preeminent Christ, the the eternal Christ, the creator 
Christ. Colossians 1 and verse 15 through 17. Notice that Paul says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Because we know what? God is a spirit and you can't see a spirit, can you? But God in flesh, Jesus becomes visible. God is visible through his flesh. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn does not mean that he's created or was born, as in God created him. The firstborn is a title, a title that gives him full authority, a full recognition. Notice verse 16. For by him, this is Christ here, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And I love verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You understand the entirety of our universe would collapse without the power and authority of Christ. His sovereignty over all things. I think it was Sproul who rightly said, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule, right? Right? I mean, he's sovereign over the very most minute details. And as the Lord of glory, Jesus occupies the center of God's work in creation, in providence, in redemption. You understand that we are here to glorify Christ. He's at the centerpiece. That doesn't mean the other person of the Trinity don't get glory. They do. But I'm saying that Christ here is central to the redemptive work of God and the creative work of God. And so Christ's exaltation shows his authority over the entire created order, including angels and demons, forces of darkness, forces of light, the visible, the invisible, the earthly, the heavenly, from the furthest star to the very last grain of sand. Christ rules over it all. I've always loved this quote by Abraham Kuyper. He says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. That's what Paul wanted the people in Athens to understand when he's trying to show them the Creator God. In Acts 17, 24, he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Because he's too big just to dwell in a temple. He's infinite. And we know sin brought a curse on the creation and all that abides within it. But through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, all that he's done, you understand that he has reconciled back to himself even the creation that was fallen in sin. If you look at Colossians in the same chapter, just a couple verses down, verse 19 through 20, You notice that it says of Christ, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things in heaven and on earth reconciled back to himself after it was sadly fallen in sin. And we know that Paul teaches that even the creation groans for its own regeneration, doesn't it? The day in which it will be liberated finally and fully from the curse of sin in Romans 8.22. And what do we find that Jesus is doing as the ruler and sovereign over all creation? Revelation 21.5 gives us the end time insight of this. He says, He who is seated on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. So you understand that this new creation is not just some fantasy, but there's a reason he says, John, write this down too. What I'm saying is true. (laughs) I'm telling the truth. I'm making all things new. And so in his sovereign time, all creation will be made new because he has absolute authority over it all. He reigns over it. Letter B, not only does he reign over the creation, he reigns over the church. This is a given, right? <laughs> he reigns over the church. This is obvious to us. But uh, there, are many, there are many churches in this world, you understand that they tend to think that the church belongs to them. I've been in those kinds of churches. And may we always understand that the church does not belong to us, it belongs to him. Because he purchased it with his blood. You and I are just part of that church that he purchased. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, that's the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and everything he might be preeminent. Now whether we refer to the local church, such as Lee Creek Baptist, or the heavenly church of all the redeemed, he is the head of it all. He is the owner. He's the redeemer. He is the, he is the authority over it. And so he does not just have superiority over creation. He has superiority over the church. She belongs to him and is under his authority alone. If you go read Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, that's another reference. I won't go there for time's sake tonight. We went through it not long ago. But Paul expounds further the authority of Christ over his church that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also the age to come. That God has put all things under his feet, that he is the head over all things to the church. And what do we find also in that book? Unto him be glory where? In the church. So how important is the church to Christ? He shed his blood for her. Purchased her. Redeemed her. Is sanctifying her and uses her. As he reigns. This is the glorious truth about that. Notice with me the letter C. Not only does he reign over the church. Not only does he reign over the creation. He also reigns over the countries of this world. I had to use a C. Otherwise it didn't alliterate. I could have put nations. Right? Because that's the Bible term. But I put countries. Maybe it's because I'm from the country. I don't know. Now it may be easy to say that Christ reigns over the creation of the church. That's easy to say. Right? But when it comes to the world and all its nations, maybe that's out of the question when you consider the nations. Have you noticed who has been subject to Christ's authority in all the texts that we read? Are the nations excluded from that? Absolutely not. Everyone is subject to be physical or spiritual. forces are ruling through human rulers, perhaps even in our own nation. I don't have much doubt about that. But here's what Peter said, even about that. 1 Peter 3, 22 of Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There's a reason this is emphasized throughout the New Testament. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority. All has been subjected to him. Why is that? That is our comfort, Christian. Could you imagine if we had a Savior who was not sovereign? That would be a scary world to live in. It doesn't matter what kind of authority or what title the ruler may go by. Jesus has absolute authority over them. The scriptures are saturated with that truth. 
in an overwhelming manner. The psalmist says of Christ in Psalm 89, 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The one above all the other ones, right? So, so today's kings and rulers of the nations, they like to think they're so powerful, so mighty, so wise, so smart. And yet they're nothing but pawns in the eternal providence of the sovereign God. Now they may act according to their own evil endeavors, but even in such actions, the Lord alone governs all things for His supreme purposes. I love this passage in Psalm 33, 10 through 12. And I read this passage devotionally this week after I woke up from a nightmare. I had a nightmare that, you know, there's all this talk about World War III and nuclear warfare, right? I had a a dream that I was uh, stuck at some mall or somewhere stupid, you know, and a nuke went off. And I couldn't get to my family. And then Bethany shows up with my family, acting like nothing's wrong. I'm like, what's wrong with you? A nuke just went off, and I just saw the blast. You know, I was all, all petrified by this. I woke up in a sweat. I'm like, man, glad that was just a dream. I came to read this. God kind of reminded me of something. He rules the nations. He rules the nations. Now, you know, that, you, that sounds like a pretty stupid dream, and it is, right? You ever had dreams that are just, you're like, what in the world's going on? Just how your mind works. But read Psalm 33, 10 through 12. I love this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to what? Nothing. He frustrates the plan of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nations who, whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, something sticks out to me about this. Now, the nations have all kinds of counsel, and he brings them to nothing, right? But this, this verse 11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. That is sovereignty woven through all of history. That his counsel always prevails. And it may be in his counsel and purpose to allow a nuclear war. He allowed World War I, the Civil War, World War II. We don't know what history may have for us in the future. But one thing we do know is that God's sovereign and that never changes. His purposes will be accomplished. And you can trust them. But here's here's the comfort. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. You know, who, you know what nation that is? Now, you may, you may reference Old Covenant Israel in the Old Testament. Do you understand that biblically, the broad scope here, that nation is the people of God. All who are in Christ are the Israel of God, according to the New Testament. You are his chosen, his elect. The ones whom he will never forsake. Who are always safe in the hands of his, their sovereign. The ones chosen as his heritage. The nations belong to Christ as his own inheritance as king. Uh, Psalm 2. Let me look at this for a moment. Psalm 2. I love this passage too. Psalm 2 gives a great insight into particularly applying this to Christ as the Messiah because this is prophecy about him. You'll notice that Psalm 2. I'm just going to read the text. Read the passage for you to get an overview. Notice, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Notice the Lord and his anointed. His anointed is Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, right? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak with them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will, sell, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You understand that through this passage, you're seeing the exalted Messiah, the Christ. What we're talking about with his ascension. And I, and I, I love how verse 2 says, The kings of the earth, they, they set themselves together against him, right? But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Why does the Lord laugh at those who take counsel against him? Because there's not the minutest chance that they can do anything that his sovereignty does not allow. Consider that. You see, the reign of his king in Zion, of Psalm 2, we see is fulfilled in the resurrected and exalted Christ. And this is what Paul spoke of to the Jews in one of his missionary journeys. Acts 13, 33, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul quotes this psalm to say, hey, you guys are looking for this king. He's risen already. He's come. Peter makes the same reference in Acts that Jesus' resurrection and ascension brought him to the true throne of David in heaven where Jesus reigns now. You know, the throne of David is not a place. It's a position. It's a position of authority in which he reigns. And so thus the Lord says to his anointed king in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There's no nation restricted from being claimed by Jesus. He rules over them by his sovereignty. And those who do not yield to him, they will be broken in his wrath. And what's the command to the rulers of the nations in verse 10 through 12? Bow or die. Kiss the sun. That's homage. That's honor. That's reverence. Bow or die. You see, even from this psalm and that command, what do you find? It ties into Psalm chapter, excuse me, Philippians two, which we just read, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Is there any knee or any tongue that's going to be excused from this? Not at all. I can say one thing, whether it happens in history or on Judgment Day, one way or another, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we look at history, we understand that God, He will be exalted among the nations, and that is what Christ is doing. Notice with me, number three, what does this all lead to? And this really applies to our perspective of things, the application to our life. Since Christ is risen, since He is exalted, since He is the sovereign, what should we anticipate with this? What is His anticipation with His authority? Two things. The first thing is the success of the gospel. The success of the gospel. You know, before Jesus ascended to His throne, what did He command His church to do? He said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority is in, in heaven and on earth are given to me. And with that authority, what does he tell them to do? He says, go. Go where? 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he commands his church to go, teach, make disciples with the gospel, baptize, and then teach again. What is that? That's evangelism, that's practicing the ordinance, and that's discipleship. And who are we to do this to? Jesus says all nations. The word nations refers to a body of persons united by kinship, culture, or common traditions. A people. It's a people group. So you know what that means? There's not any square inch of this world in which you and I, as the church, are not to go and reach with the gospel. Even that island that is off limits, they need the gospel. They need the gospel. Every people group on this planet. So how how can Jesus give such a small group of people, these disciples, such an impossible command? Have you ever thought about the Great Commission in light of what it was at that time when they heard it? This small group of people, Jesus says, go to the nations, the entirety of them, and make disciples of them. That is an impossible command from an all-powerful Savior. That's what we're called to do is the impossible. Because all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus. Because he's got all authority in heaven and earth, he says go to them. And this is the bigger picture of Christ's authority in his mission. Not only did he die for his people, he's going to get all his people. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 for the one and he doesn't come back until he's got them. That's what he's done. You know what this shows us? That Christ has His elect, His chosen, in every nation in this world. They are everywhere. With His authority and power, He says to His church, Go and get them. Because He died for them and He will have His own. You know, we sing Jesus paid it all, but He will also get all He paid for. He has not told his church to disciple the nations with the expectation that that mission is going to fail. Because he's sovereign, you and I can only expect success in the gospel work. That doesn't mean that everyone or every nation is going to come to Christ. But it does mean, but it does mean that God's elect abide in every nation and they will be reached. I like what William Tyndale said with regard to this. Christ is with us until the world's end. Let his little flock be bold, therefore. <laughs> what, what, what have we to fear since he is with us and the gospel is the power of God into salvation and Christ has overcome the enemy. Christ has triumphed over sin, Satan, and the world. You understand that, that this doesn't mean there's not persecution or tribulation or even martyrdom. It means that the gospel is successful in spite of all those things. What you'll find in history is that often when the gospel is persecuted, it actually flourishes. Perhaps that's what America needs because we are full with false gospel. The church in America needs greatly purged. But I say these things so that we not be pessimistic about the gospel. No matter how dark it may seem or appear, Christ's authority on his throne anticipates that success. But not only that, letter B, we see also the spread of his kingdom, which these two are intertwined together because the gospel and his kingdom, they go hand in hand. The gospel will be successful 
in reaching the people of the nations made up of, and his kingdom will spread because it, this kingdom is made up of believers as they spread throughout the world. Jesus taught his disciples of the kingdom, saying, Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in the branches. So Christ's kingdom starts small and slowly grows. When did his kingdom come in such a small way? During his ministry. Do you remember what Jesus said when the, apostles, when, the, when the Pharisees were challenging him about his kingdom, saying, oh, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. But here's what he says, Matthew 12, 28, if I by the Spirit of God had cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Present tense. Because the kingdom of God is present and future. This is all intertwined or connected to his ascension and his exaltation. Now, why is the ascension of Jesus so important in regard to this? Because through his ascension in his reign, he is fulfilling the redemptive plan of God in history. I want to close with one final passage to demonstrate this in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. And when I realized this particular text and saw what it was saying, it enlightened so much for me. I used to read this text backwards because I was taught to read it backwards, really. It's better to not learn something than have to unlearn something, if you know what I mean. It comes to many different doctrines, but Dan- Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? It's Christ. And he says in verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You'll notice that a kingdom is given to the Messiah, the Son of Man. And that kingdom, the word kingdom, it's an Aramaic word. It refers to kingship, sovereignty, and a reign. The New Testament word Jesus uses refers to the royal reign of God. It's often rendered as the kingdom of God. But to have a kingdom, you have to have a king and a kingdom in which he overreigns over, right? But notice when Daniel says this kingdom is given to the Son of Man. When is it given to him? When he came to the Ancient of Days. Is Daniel describing a descension, as in the second coming, or an ascension, as in his exaltation? Ascension. Coming on the clouds, ascending to heaven. I used to read this and think, well, the kingdom doesn't start until he comes back on the clouds, right? It doesn't say that. It says he went to the ancient of days. Ascension, just as you read in Acts. Ascended in the clouds. And when he ascended to his throne in glory, then was given him a kingdom in which all nations and peoples would come to him. Friend, this is the glory of what Christ is doing now in history. This is why we're here. It's not just to come to church and worship. It is also to reach the people around us. Psalm 22, 27 through 28 says this way, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over who? 
nations. And why does his kingdom do this? Because Christ is exalted above all and he reigns presently. Paul said of Christ's present rule in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Psalm 110, 1. So I give us this message to help us understand something. The ascension of Christ is absolutely vital to our purpose in this world. Because Christ isn't sitting in heaven doing nothing. He's interceding for us, but he's also reigning for us. We have a glorious king, and he uses us as his church to take his glorious gospel into the world in which we know it will not fail. Friend, if I believed that the gospel would fail because of darkness around us, I'd hang it up right now. And I'd say, let's shut the church down. We're wasting our time. But instead, what Spurgeon say? We're not fighting a dead man's cause. We have a living, reigning king. Now, I understand there are certainly times of darkness in our history, and I think we're seeing a lot of it right now in our own nation. And may I say, church, that right now is when we need to shine as bright as possible. Because the assault is coming. It's on its way. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is exalted high. He's exalted high. He is the king. And so I challenge us to see him as we ought to see him. The one who has all authority. That we bow before his authority. That we rejoice and rest in his sovereignty. Because truly, Christian, what's our greatest comfort and confidence? It is the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God that he he is in control. He's the one in charge. So I pray that we would take this and apply it to our life. We see the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's not where the story ends. We've got the ascension and his exaltation, his kingdom and reign, and ultimately, he's going to come back again. And I long for that day. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, as John the Apostle said.